Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by that wascally wabbit, Jeremy Goldcorn, a.k.a. Me, the man behind DanWay.com. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing really, really, really well, Kaiser, for a bunch of reasons, but not because of the air. Our streak is truly bust. It's dead. We want it's a new streak of, like, shitty, fucking horrible... A horrible like, streak. So it's, it's post-apocalypse now. It's beyond, almost beyond index today. We're loving Beijing. Right. The air is nutritious. Uh, so to, to, this again, we're going to be revealing the shortcomings of a uh, of an audio medium by talking today to a videographer and a photographer, somebody who works very much in the visual medium. Uh, he's an old uh, somebody who's been knocking around Beijing since two thousand nine, uh, and. Started his career at the China Daily rather inauspiciously, although he actually went on to design what is now the current layout that's used in that august publication. We welcome of the print publication, of the right, print Jonah? Publication, yes, and the web. Yep. Well, welcome to Seneca, Jonah Kessel. How are you? Thank you very much. Good to be here. So, Jonah, you you're currently uh, uh, working full time for the New York Times, right? Um, you're one of the th- three people in their whole video unit globally. Is that is that correct? That's the- correct. Um, it's it's a big department now, but not so many full time people out of the country. Okay, and you've you've been doing this now for how long? For the times you you shot for them for quite a while, right? Yeah, I've been under their their visa here in China for about four years now. Um, lucky, lucky, lucky! Yeah. Good timing. <laughs> well, yeah, it hurts me still being here. Uh, touch wood, yeah. touch wood, Jonah. Um, but uh, full time now for a year. Great, and uh, you've done some really outstanding work. I mean, I think anyone who has been in China and has been sort of you know observing things Chinese has seen your work before. Um, more recently, stuff about Burma and and the Golden Triangle, the opium trade, the jade trade, uh, but maybe more famously, uh, something you did back in 2012 on Foxconn, where you actually got into the factory and did some really great shooting that was accompanying David Barboza's piece on, on that. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct. All right, all right. Why don't we talk about that story? We might yeah, as well just get straight into it. So, I mean, Foxconn, you know, very complicated narrative. You have Mike Daisy accusations that workers are, are underage and being treated very badly and getting horrible diseases. Um, you have people rebutting that. Uh, Mike Daisy famously rebutted by a f- previous Seneca guest. Rob uh, Schmitz. Rob right. Schmitz, who basically proved that Mike Daisy's whole him, yeah. d- story was a bunch of shit. W- what's your take on Foxconn? What is it like for people working there? What was it like to shoot inside a Foxconn factory? How did you manage to get in, by the way? I mean, I, I can't imagine that they were they were happy to have a, a New York Times uh, videographer pro- roaming the premises. Well, they certainly, certainly weren't. It wasn't a quick pr- process. Um, in terms of my involvement, I mean, I think initially first when... Um, when I saw the Mike Daisy stuff, uh, I was actually initially really put off because I thought that what I got was not good. I remember really feeling strongly about that, being like, "Oh shit, I didn't get any. I didn't get any kids. Like, where, where, are the, where are the sixteen-year-olds? Where are the twelve-year-olds?" So you shot it before the Mike Daisy. Yeah, so thing. A lot, that's the thing about news. Sometimes we do things, and it takes a lot, a long time for them to come out, especially with investigations like that, where they're really checking all of the details. There's so much fact-checking going on uh, that it takes forever for things to come out. And um, in the case of Mike Daisy, we'd been reporting on it for possibly a year mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. Our, the, before the series really started. Um, I don't remember the exact timing, but I do remember feeling that I had not done my job right. And I really credit Rob Schmitz for actually like calling that to, my, to everybody's attention, the world's attention. Um, but and ter- vindicating you for not having actually found any 11-year-olds. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying there aren't, but I, I just didn't see any, and neither did that guy. 
But uh, I went twice, actually. Um, this was in Shenzhen, right? Uh, no, no, um, no, you were, you were I, the other one. I've been to multiple, actually, um, okay. multiple uh, facilities. The first time I went was in Chengdu, and that was in the beginning of 2012, before we had access. Uh-huh. Um, they refused to give us access. We pleaded. And I remember getting these calls being like, okay, see what you can get. Hang out around the factory. Um, I'm thinking you don't really look like a migrant worker, though. Uh, the thing is, I'm, I'm quite small. Uh-huh. Um, and believe it or not, I think uh, having dark hair, having... I don't have super white skin, light skin, well, but um, it's, it's fair. It's, I would it's say. fair. I'm Caucasian, um, <laughs> but of uh, Middle Eastern descent at one point, I think. Uh, but, you know, I put a hat on. I do my shady, uh, you know, journalist get up with a hat and a <laughs> scarf. And, you know, I use a really small, I, at that time especially, I was using really small cameras, just DSLRs and uh, maybe um, a very small tripod or a monopod or something. But, Initially, we didn't have access, and I went to the Chengdu facility, and I hung out for about two days in a car with no, um, with you know tinted windows. windows. Yeah, right. and we drove around, and there's this uh, famous accident there that uh, blasted a hole through a fence in a factory, and some people actually died. It was it was a bad accident, but um, they hadn't really repaired that hole. And, and so that was your point of breach. My, my first time, my first point of breach was not necessarily on the most. Uh, there was no sign that said didn't that said do not enter, but. Um, <laughs> It was a hole in the wall. It was a hole in the wall. <laughs> it was just an invitation, really. Yeah, I mean, the thing is... You're that, a journalist. Why didn't you see a hole yeah, in the wall? I didn't wall. say don't go through, so, I, so I, I went through. And uh, if you actually go back to that first video I made, it's it's actually incredible to me now. It doesn't look good, but never never in the video do we say this this story, you know, um, because it's, it's a little dodgy. But, um, you know, all the footage in that first video is completely off the cuff. It's like me sneaking around in hallways and getting kind of to the point that I could see people working. However, what happened was over the course of the year, we kept on reporting on it. And eventually, they had some international pressure to let us in. Mm. Um, and so by the end of the year, we got much more official access. But what we did do was go through a contractor of, of Foxconn, or a company that was contracting Foxconn, actually. A contractor of company, yep. yeah, right. um, And that was HP, okay. uh, Hewlett-Packard. Right. And, um, so it wasn't actually Apple products on that line? Uh, and the factories in the end in that second video, it was not. It was Hewlett-Packard. Um, and... Uh, that's how we got in. Foxconn is still uh, kind of a tough uh, nut to break there. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. But but you didn't find anything horrifically incriminating then. You didn't you didn't see any anything that was obviously you know violations of, of, of labor laws. I mean, maybe HP kind of sanitized or made sure that it was everything was going to be tightened down nicely before you. Well. I mean, the thing is... Um, oh, uh, an internet or technology company would never do something like that, <laughs> no, Kaiser. Of course not. No, no, no. <laughs> there's, there, there's multiple... I mean, it's, it's everything... You don't even really have PR to speak of. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, when we did uh, see the HP stuff, um, we did these things that were wrong, but everything has such a, a grand scheme of what's right and what's wrong or how bad things are mm-hmm. um, and what's legal and what's not legal. You know, if you see, if you see a greater scope of, of how the label labor conditions are it honestly it was pretty good we didn't see things that weren't great you, you mean in the chinese context i mean you look in the chinese context in the asian context i mean i've seen a- anywhere where there's like manufacturing with low low wage laborers yeah. yeah and this is highly this is at that point they'd already gotten raises twice right. that year right. and big raises 50 percent raises and, and what if you're a worker who's been at foxconn for a couple of years what do you make do you do you remember 
Um, it depends where you are. I think it can vary greatly from Shenzhen to inland. Right. Um, out west, they're not making as much. Yeah, but I mean, it is like three to five thousand uh, RMB a month. Yep. I think it's it's somewhere in that neighborhood. Better than digging a ditch. Oh God, God, yes. I mean, you know, or well, being a chungwan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But labor prices. I mean, I mean, Foxconn had all this news in the past year about trying to replace workers with robots, and um, I, I haven't followed up completely. But from what I understand, it hasn't been successful. Um, the robots haven't been successful, and the workers are still there. Um, Good for the workers. Right. Yeah, but th- that's coming. Labor is getting expensive. The ro- robots ro- are coming. The robots are here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a fact. And I, for one, welcome our new <laughs> robot overlords. Okay, so that was Foxconn. I mean, that, that, that was a big, big, splashy story. What, what, what other story in the last few years have you done that sort of is one of those issues that um, everybody has an opinion on? I don't know. I, I don't know if everyone has an opinion on Foxconn, but anyone has an opinion on on, on on Apple products. Sure, anyway, sure. Well, let's, let's let's go for um, uh, jade and opium and and all. The, yeah, opium, no, opium. drugs. We yeah, always drugs. like to talk like, about drugs on the yeah. show. Let's talk about drugs. Have we ever talked about drugs on this show? We had uh, Robert Foyle Hanwick as a guest. Oh right, we did. Ah, oh, you weren't there. Right, we did right, sex right. and drugs and prostitution, basically. And, yeah. <laughs> sex is separate from prostitution, or uh, well, yeah, uh, uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sorry. We've done rock and roll. Oh, speaking of, I, I left something really conspicuous out of my intro to Jonah here. He is also a very, very accomplished musician. I've heard him just wailing on guitar and on and on mandolin. I think he plays anything with frets and strings. Extraordinary. And, um, yeah, and some horn instruments as well. What do you? What? what? Come well, on, don't don't be shy. What, what else do you play? Music. Well, there's the question of what I can play and what I have played. And okay, um, let's, let's go with what you can play. What you're prepared to admit to playing. What you wouldn't uh, well, mind standing oh. up in front of people and actually performing on? Oh, that's a much simpler answer. I would just, I would, I would just keep it to mandolin. <laughs> but you're, oh, you're pretty good on guitar too. Yeah, yeah, guitar is, is it? Yeah, guitar. Um, but you know, when I was a kid, I grew up playing classical instruments and piano, and um, and then I was in orchestras playing horns, uh, trumpet, and uh, tuba. Uh, some low brass. What? You know, I've had a fucking enough of this subject. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Multi-talented yeah. youth. Let's let's get back to <laughs> something. That... Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was the digression because we started off with, with drugs. And, yeah, yeah we were going to talk about drugs. So, it's Golden really Triangle. Different. The Golden Triangle is alive and well. Um, so, I've been uh, in Myanmar a lot in the past uh, two years. In the past two years, I think I've spent now maybe five months there. These uh, are mostly pieces you did with Ed Wong, right? Nope. No, uh, no. I know Ed was there a lot too. Yeah, you, Ed, weren't, you weren't working on the same stuff. Nope. It depends. Uh, not with Ed, actually. I have okay. helped Ed with some Kachin stuff a couple years ago, especially when the fighting began. That I guess that was actually a long time ago. Yeah, it was probably like 2010. 2000, yeah, 2010, 11. Right? Yep. Um, but since then, uh, I have done a lot of reporting, um, and most recently this year on drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that is in relationship, uh, actually, all of it is in some way related to China. Um, and so two main stories, and there have been bigger stories. One of them was about jade and uh, the Chinese demand for jade and what that's doing in Kachin, where all of uh, Feitsui, the best best jade, comes from. Right, Feitsui. Right. Yep. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of jade around the world, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the one that everyone in China wants is Burmese jade, and that comes from Kachin. Um, Kachin is, is a, a uh, one of the northern states. It is the most northern right, state, right, and it is... It abuts China, and it's... Yep. Right. Um, it abuts uh, Yunnan and Tibet, and okay. it's... Um, and India. And um, it is war-torn. They've been in civil war, essentially, for decades. Uh, C- can you uh, simply describe who the actors are in that civil war? Um, no, you can't simply describe. I mean, you could simply describe it as the Burmese and the Kachin. Uh, the Burmese being the dominant Burman 
people, mm -hmm. um, the government. Uh, but it's not so simple. There's definitely other factors. Um, so, I mean, you have a number of ethnic groups. In this, yes, there's there's multiple wars going on throughout. The Wa, the Kachin, the, the Shan. Right, the Wa are in Shan State. In Shan State um, right. But in Shan State, for example, you have all these different military armed groups. You have the SSA North, you have the SSA South, you have the Pao, you have the Wa. You have all, lots of militarist groups. And many, some of them are operating on drug money. I think all, it's fair. All of them. I don't know if you say all of them, but uh, yeah. A lot of them. Good, a good number of them. There's yeah. a lot of drug money sloshing around. Sure. Drug and, money and as well as illegal trade of other things such as jade, jade or timber. Okay. Um, Things like that. The jade, the jade industry in particular um, was really interesting to me. And I'd actually done another project about a year earlier, which got me started on it. Um, I spent like a month in Kachin trying to do another project on drugs there where I really learned about it. Um, but I didn't do a jade project. And the, the situation is drugs are kind of um, being used with impunity, mm -hmm. especially around the mines. Um, this means people can sell heroin, use heroin. And we're talking about heroin here as the main drug. There is amphetamines, methamphetamines, mm -hmm. but heroin is, is the big... Uh, and, and the locally produced crop. Right, locally mm -hmm. um, in terms of Sean State, which mm -hmm. is very close. There is mm -hmm. a poppy growing in Kachin now. Uh, most of the heroin is being produced in Sean State, mm -hmm. um, which Sean State, geographically speaking, is just south and east, but it borders Yunnan and Thailand as well. Okay. Um, and so the, the, jade, the jade scenario is crazy because you have a lot of jade... Um, you have so much value being put into this from the Chinese market. And um, in some ways, you can look at the story as the miners are kind of sla a slave now uh -huh. to the jade industry and to drugs. Um, by not policing it, the story, at least the theory from the Kachin side, is that um, the Burmese kind of get their way. It's an opium war because all these youth are addicted to heroin. Um, they're not really taking up the fight anymore. And if the Burmese just hold out, they will win this war that's been going on for over 60 years. So the war actually hasn't let up, even though, uh, you know, Burma is now famously much more liberal now. Um, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi is out and uh, running sure. for public office. and uh, Right. I mean, that, that, that's the, the great question, right? The, great question. The, fa the fact that there's so many Burmas right now. And if you go to Yangon... Um, if you go to Mandalay, it's like a Chinese city. It's, it's really like another Chinese city. It's, uh -huh. it's very non-distinct. And if you go to Yangon, people are, you know. Mandalay is non-distinct. That's so disappointing. That was yeah. one of the last romantic words in my vocabulary. Yeah, it's, it's very <laughs> oh, disappointing. Fuck. Don't go. Keep, keep it there. Oh, keep no. Keep your Kipling sense. But, uh, you know, in Yangon, it's, um, it's really like a remarkable. If you go back every three months for a couple of years straight, and you start seeing change way quicker than I see in China. And I see change quick in China. Right. I go on vacation for two weeks, I come back, like half the stores are gone in my hutong or whatever. Um, I mean, things are changing here, but what's going on there is a much, uh, a much faster rate, um, almost as if they're in a rush. I um, mean, you do have a... China in the 80s. I mean, yeah. That kind of change. I mean, you do have a civilian elected government. Now, if how democratic is it? They, they love to use the word democracy. Um, and certain things are certainly better, free speech, amongst them is, is significantly improved right. um, to the point where people are willing to talk. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, it was really hard to talk in Burma. You had to be very secretive and protective of your sources. And, and uh, Burmese censorship used to make China look good, right. whereas now... Whereas right. the internet is quite free. And, uh, yeah, and yeah. I mean, they have the internet and they have... I mean, that Facebook, they have the Facebook, yeah. and they love YouTube, it and and Twitter, they have all that stuff. And they, and they love it. And mm. there's other issues that are going along with that, ethics issues. Um, especially along the lines of hate speech. Um, against Muslims. Against Muslims. Um, by Buddhists. By Buddhists, yeah. And 
it, it's that's a whole other topic. Right. So you have this really unique scenario where you have this situation where the United States, for example, is cheering them on. You hear this word democracy, and Obama's been a couple of times now, and um, and Hillary Clinton's been there. It's I mean, people really love this democracy concept. But what's happening on the outskirts of the country is completely contradictory. Uh-huh. You have things, I mean, you have, for example, in Kachin State, you know, these, these areas where people are, um, I've seen, you know, 30 people shooting up heroin all together with police walking around, and that's not a big deal. Or people selling heroin on mass scales, and the fact that it's being sold everywhere, even if you're in the main city in Kachin, uh, the, the capital, Machina, it's at, the, it's at every tea shop. It's all over the place. You might not see it right away, but as soon as you know <laughs> what the signs What's are. What's that doing to life there? It's completely devastating. Um, and the facts, whenever you start talking about numbers, it gets really messy. Um, I would venture to say none of them are accurate, but there's some truth to them. And uh, But if you talk to, for example, the um, KBC, the Kachin Baptist Church, and this is a heavily Christian, Christianized area. Right. Um, and the church plays a huge role, especially in a place where the government hasn't been playing a role. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and they'll say, you know... Um, one-third of Myanmar youth are addicted to heroin. Oh, my God. Um, or HIV rates are off the chart. I was going to ask that next. Yeah. Right. And so because of lack of uh, From bad needles, mostly. Needles, yeah. yeah. Right, sharing needles. And, right. and it's, it's all connected. The, the work I was doing later in the year in Sean State um, about the opium trade itself uh, kind of tied a lot of it into for me. And that's um, another complicated Burma thing. But essentially... China and the Burmese government were trying to get rid of opium in in their territory for a long time. Mm-hmm. China on the other side of their border. Sure. They wanted these military groups to stop growing opium in poppy because the drug problem has <laughs> certainly come into China. Um, drug use in China, heroin use especially, has gone up incredibly in the past 15 years. Especially in Yunnan. In especially in Yunnan. It's always been pretty bad in Yunnan. I heard the first time I went there was in 95, and um, there were signs. Yeah. I mean, it's in, along with a drug problem you have and introducing uh, needle problems and, and health right. problems. But um, the, the way that they went about trying to deal with their opium problem, their poppy problem, actually created a great, in my opinion, created a greater health risk because their method of dealing with it was eradication. Mm-hmm. So the government, the Chinese government, along with the Burmese government and some you know, United Nations groups um, were saying, okay, you guys, no, no more growing poppy. And the Burmese would go in and chop it down. Uh, the Chinese would go in with money and say, okay, we're going to turn these poppy farms into uh, rubber farms. And they'd you know, chop down all this poppy and then plant all this rubber and say, you can have jobs here. Mm-hmm. Um, to the Burmese farmers, that came off as land grabs. So they weren't very happy, and they didn't want to work for you know, crappy wages anyway. And these are very poor people that have food security issues anyway. Um, and so it didn't really solve the when you uh, Sorry, when you say food security issues, you mean are they actually hungry some of the time? Yes. Yeah. They don't have enough rice to feed themselves. Right. They're thin. They're, they're, yeah, they're, right. they're okay. thin people. But what it did was uh, essentially two things. First of all, initially it did lower opium production, and all that did was increase the price of opium, mm. which made it more expensive to smoke, which actually makes heroin cheaper, a cheaper form of the drug to use. And so all of a sudden people are starting to smoke heroin uh, versus smoking opium, and that actually leads to shooting heroin, which starts leading to it being more addictive and starts leading to other health-related issues. Right. Cracking Hepsi. down on opium production. I mean, because uh, heroin, more bang for the buck. Yep. Uh, it's more addictive. It's easier to smuggle. It's easier, easier to, to right, smuggle. Right. Yep. More health problems associated with it. So it, was, it just started becoming imported now then from the Shan State to the South, right? Well, so what happened was... Uh, it was it was still always in, in Sean, and the Wa were huge players in this initially. But um, what happened was it made this balloon effect. You know, the, the balloon effect is where you squeeze the balloon, and 
the air doesn't go away. It just moves to another place in the balloon. Right. Um, in this case, it's opium so or poppy. So they squeeze the balloon in. Yeah, initially they stopped. They couldn't grow poppy right there, but it just moved south, you know, 100 uh, miles or something like that, mm-hmm. a little bit away from the border, but it's still a stone's throw away, close enough to get precursors in from China, close enough to smuggle out through Thailand. Um, I mean, it's really, it didn't solve the problem, and it didn't address the root some root issues. Where's it going? It's not being all consumed, obviously, in Kachin. It's going no, into no. China. I mean, the end markets are in China and, 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 market is, and then is, from Thailand to the rest of, of Southeast Asia and into the world. Uh, mostly actually Asia. Mostly um, Asia. Yep. Okay. Uh, 90% of it will stay in, will get to China and stay in China. Okay. China's heroin demand is so big that their Afghan uh, opium is also, or Afghan heroin is actually end up ending up here too. Wow. Um, uh, but uh, so is it, Correct then that no, the Afghan heroin is ending up m- mostly in Europe and in the Burmese and in America. In America. In America. Yep. And the Burmese heroin is Indonesia. coming here. Yep. So Burma right now, um, and what's, what's remarkable about this is when they did do this big effort to remove poppy from the Golden Triangle, it did kind of on paper look like it was working. And so in 2006, there's a really famous UN quote from UNODC where they said, you know, we've been working really hard at this and we've we've done it you know we eradicated we've eradicated it. poppy yeah. from the golden triangle and now it's uh, not even 10 years later and there's you know 65,000 hectares more than there was then Good god um it just started you know doubling year on year on year on and um at the same time you have this great opening up and this democrat uh, democratization of the country going on but um i mean the interesting thing is that sure it's myanmar you're still in myanmar but it's not really the same country, and the Burmese government is not in control in these areas. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. these are mil- independent military military areas. Where I was recently was uh, with the Shan State Army. Um, and so I, when we were actually going in, as soon as we got to Shan State in a Burmese-controlled area, uh, the you know drug police, drug police showed up right away and were following us. And they're in this car behind us, and as soon as we crossed this one military checkpoint, and not their military, they, they just stopped, they stopped following us. It's no longer our jurisdiction. We're it's not no longer... Not by the persona non grata there. I mean, it was actually more that they were scared. I don't right. think because there's some like evil warlord who. I mean, there's. I mean, well, there's, uh, whatever. There's a war going on. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. a separate. It's a war. It's a separate. This is not their territory. Right. Yeah. And and the way it was kind of working was most of the independent armies had the high ground. They're up in the hills. Right. And the Burmese were down at the bottom. Uh, so once the road goes up, the Burmese police and military don't want to go up, go up yeah. there, there. And there's right. checkpoints. I mean, there's military checkpoints all over that country. Depending who's um, controlling them, in, the, in this case, it was the SSA, and um, which is sorry, the Shansai SSA. Army. Shansai Army. Army. There's a couple of Shanse armies. This is the Shanse Army South, to be specific, because right. they don't like to get confused with the people in the north. Wow. Why don't we move on? This is so fascinating. But let's move to maybe another topic. Can we talk about e-cigarettes? Oh, sure. <laughs> so you, you, I don't think it hasn't been published yet. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think I've seen it. It's out. Yeah. Um, so the Times today. A series called The New Smoke last year. Uh-huh. And there was a bunch of articles um, about e-cigarettes. Um, I mean, it's a huge... Trend. Vaping was the word of the year for, uh, by vape, some dictionary. Vape, 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 vape yeah. sorry. Um, hmm. And, it, I mean, it's a huge thing. When you're in China, you don't really see it. I, I just got back from Europe. It's uh, everywhere. I got, yeah, yesterday, and I was in Switzerland, but I was on the border of France. And we, especially in France, I love it. And we'd go over in the morning to buy, like, baguettes and stuff. And in the market there's old ladies using them and there's old guys and these baguettes and like these berets and stuff all all using e-cigarettes and it's like once you leave china you really see how the industry i mean it's 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 huge and uh, people because i mean i've used them as you know um somebody who's uh, had a lifelong struggle against nicotine um 
they you feel you know they're not cigarettes. You don't cough. You feel better. Uh, they are marketed as not being harmful to your health. You can have a sneaky smoke on a plane because they don't set off any alarms now or anything. they are saying on planes not to do it now. Well, they're saying that, but you can s- – I mean, I've done it on a plane, so <laughs> I know the smoke alarm doesn't work in the toilet. There's the, no the, smoke. Because there's no smoke. There's no smoke. Yeah. There's a little bit of water vapor sometimes just for the effect, right? Because they – They make a, a – yeah. You can see it. I mean, that's a, that's you a can popular see it. thing, the, the whole – Exhaling of is part of the the smoking the thing, appeal, right? Yeah, yeah you of course. The fact that you're smoking, um, <laughs> but um, all these smokers who are now thinking that you can just smoke e-cigarettes and it's safe. Um, so yeah, so there's so what? What's the problem? Okay, what's the problem? So there's, I guess the easiest answer is that we don't know, right? That's what you always hear. Like we don't know what's in the juice. We don't know what the long-term effects of vaporizing nicotine is. This is what you hear all over the place. What we've just found in our in our look at it. Um, was actually on the manufacturing side. Um, and so 90, 90%, 95% of the e-cigarettes in the world are manufactured uh, in China. That's what I thought, yeah. 95%. And, and not only that, they're all manufactured in Shenzhen and all in one neighborhood. I mean, wow. it's, it's Bawan neighborhood. I mean, it's like it's a, it's a little neighborhood and everybody's doing it. People who used to sell shampoo are now making wicks and you know, everybody's, everybody's involved. And it's uh, this kind of Wild West feeling. I mean, it's really exciting. Everybody's making money. Um, there's no regulation. And even... And, uh, you know, it's Ch- I love China in some ways. But uh, anyway, uh, and so, isn't that great? I mean, you know, if you're like a capitalist kind of libertarian type, China sometimes just feels great. Except... Except, What's the problem? In, th- in this case, what we found uh, with this device, these devices specifically, was there was a lot of inconsistency in the manufacturing process. So in one e-cigarette, you have over 200 parts. Now, some factories will go ahead and make all those 200 parts. Most of them won't, and they will be subcontracting other factories right. and subcontracting other factories. And at the end of the day, you might find a, a basement with a bunch of actual kids, not like the Foxconn kids, actual mm-hmm. kids, screwing things together or welding things with no gloves, welding things with no gloves. Um, and so what the, uh, bad parts we found about the devices themselves, which hadn't really been talked about so much was that the manufacturing was so inconsistent that when the devices were heating up, a lot of metals from the joints were actually being vaporized along with the nicotine. And this means people are inhaling things like zinc, tin, lead, lead, lead. Wow. Okay. So there's lead in the solder. Right. And, and, and so, uh, People are, are really quick to say, oh, there's no carcinogen, but okay, well, hold on. What does vaporizing <laughs> zinc do to you? Um, another thing that was bad was that the wicks, the, the heating devices themselves, were heating up at an inconsistent temperature. Uh-huh. And some of them were getting so hot that the glycerin in the liquid, in the, in the e-liquid, um, was turning into um, formaldehyde. And that's another thing you probably Formaldehyde. Well, we used to drink a lot of that in the, in the beer. <laughs> the yeah, it's probably engine, okay yeah. for you. Um, but Jonah, so uh, e-cigarettes. You at all, Jeremy. You're, you're, you're ready to move on. This isn't. You're not no, no, I don't smoke anymore. Stuff. You know, I'm, 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 I'm nearly uh, uh, completely past my worst addictions. Nearly. But um, well, I'm I, curious. I mean, is there is there anything? Is there any effort now? I mean, is the well, yeah. I mean, what, to try to regulate the industry. I, I don't want to ask about the Chinese government. I don't think that's the important part right now, Kaiser. The, the, I think. The important question is that the big uh, tobacco companies, BAT, whatever, Philip Morris, whatever they call themselves these days, they are getting really big into the e-cigarette industry. What are the, uh, I, I mean, mean, how are they dealing with this? Are they well, are, are they dealing with this? 
Well, yeah, they're dealing with it with in, in terms of lobbyist efforts not to have them regulated as nicotine <laughs> devices. But, but they don't give a shit about what goes into the e-cigarette they're selling. I, I mean, they they're not... They don't give about they, your cigarette or the e-cigarette or... or no, you know, it's they, not. Clearly, ethics is not... The, 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 our well-being is not there. Ethics is not a primary factor behind the tobacco business? I'm shocked. <laughs> okay, so so the issue, though, is that if the FDA were to even begin... First of all, they can't regulate right now. Second of all, if they were to come in, which the Chinese government isn't necessarily letting them, that's a whole other issue. If the FDA comes into China, if they can just kind of operate as if they were in the U.S., and they can't... No, of course they can't, right? But right. they can at the ports. They can... They can, they can right. right. Um, but if they were to start getting into these uh, into these factories, to actually go through the, the supply chain... It would be absolutely nuts. But they don't I, have the manpower to be able to do anything. Close I don't to think that. you could audit one of those things. I mean, we we tried. Right, just because of the complexity of the supply chain. Because right? and and then if you and then, and this is not even looking at the juice. Right. The juice is a whole other story. Um, and so the juice. I mean, let's explain because maybe not everybody is mm-hmm. completely familiar with vaping. The well, juice is just just liquefied um, nicotine, right? It's just extra, it's not just extra, that. Extra, there's there's extra, flavors. Right, right. There's flavor. There's there's lots Apple of there's lots of ingredients. Okay. I mean, Any you, flavor you like, basically. Weird flavors. Yeah. And flavors that a lot of people have criticized uh, appeal to kids, like... Mm-hmm. Um, candy, candy bubble flavors. gum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the marketing has mm-hmm. also been accused of, of looking at, you know, young markets. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what you do essentially is take a bit of nicotine and some flavors and some other things, and you turn it into liquid. And then you're going to pour that liquid into a vaporizing thing that can look like a cigarette, it can look like a cigar, or it can look like nothing. They make some some weird things and also um, kind of individualized things. Like if you're a trucker, they make things that go into your truck so you can just kind of vape off your truck. Or if you're a guitarist, they make something that goes into your jack. And there's, there's all sorts of weird things that will power your um, e-cigarette. I mean, they, they charge your phones. They do. They can work as a 3G thing. I mean, there's all sorts of Jesus a three G e cig. Yeah, no, that's the thing. It's it sounds become, like it's become uh, right, uh, right up my street. Like, like a, a wearable type of fashion. <laughs> a wearable e cig. Yeah. yeah. Um, God. So you suck your watch and you get a, a little head of nicotine kind of thing. <laughs> that's where it's going. Um, I mean, the the question is though. We, like I said, nobody really knows what these things will do. We've studied cigarettes for a long time. We have not studied e cigarettes for a long time. Even though they're not actually new devices, they were actually invented. Unlike everything else here, almost everything else here, they were invented in China. Yeah, they were. I remember. Yeah. What, what's his name? Mr. Lee? Uh, I don't know. He Mr. Wouldn't, Lee. He wouldn't, he wouldn't give me an interview. I know that. Oh, he wouldn't. No, yeah. He's not interested. They were invented in China. They were yeah. invented in China. And then he got completely kind of shut out. Because there is a China tobacco side, which is interesting about this. And because, I mean, I know there's a couple of shops popping up in on, in my neighborhood in Guo now. But um, I'm pretty sure they're illegal to sell in shops now. You can buy them on Taobao. Uh, maybe on JD.com, but um, you can't sell them in shops here. And and, um, and why is that? It's, from what I've been told, it's because the China tobacco, the state tobacco industry doesn't have anything, any part of it yet. Yeah, and and until they will, they, right. they, they won't be legal. Okay. Um, and so the China... So were they sourcing the actual leaf? They're, they're buying directly from growers. Um, the, the question of where they get the nicotine uh-huh. is, is an interesting one, but... Um, my part was definitely about the devices and manufacturing. Okay. I have looked. I, have, I did go to one juice factory, um, and it really looked like a like a crazy scientific lab. I mean, it was very, in my opinion, high tech compared to what I've seen, especially in the West in America, where people are ordering big bottles of things and they're uh-huh. kind of in back back rooms and just kind of mixing things almost in a cavalier esque, <laughs> like oh, a little bit of strawberry, a little bit of apple, and then we'll add some, you know, like a Red Bull flavor and. Um, <laughs> 
So basically, the takeaway from this is that if uh, you think you're switching to a healthy alternative because you're switching to e-cigarettes, you might actually be basically smoking cadmium, pure cadmium fumes. Yeah, I mean, I think... That's the takeaway from from the story, maybe. The takeaway is there's no guarantees. And and the fact that there's no carcinogen is not necessarily true. And the fact that you're not damaging yourself is definitely not true. Okay. Okay. Uh, so what's been the reaction to the story so far? I mean, it's only out, been out for a little bit, but... In a couple of weeks, maybe. What, what, are you, what are you hearing now? I mean, what's um, the reaction been? It wasn't as big as I thought it would be. Uh-huh. Um, I definitely have received a lot of requests <laughs> for, for comment about it. But um, it wasn't like one of these things where everyone was like, wow, these things are, are killing us. A lot of people are like, huh. Well, I mean, after this show, everyone will know. <laughs> the whole world listens to Yeah, because, yeah, unlike the New York Times, you know, our, our right. circulation you know, uh, is on the up. Yeah. Website. Uh, can we move on to, like, we've discussed some of your big stories, and there are plenty of more, uh, plenty more of them on the New York Times site and elsewhere. And even you and I have had some collaborations, like the music series we did mm. together. So maybe we can put some links to some of your video work, Jonah. But can we, instead of talking about the stories you've done, talk about your art and your craft um, a little bit more and, and maybe some advice for people who might be considering it? Because you're somebody who, I mean, you kind of made up your own career. You were working as a designer uh, at China Daily and photographer. Um, and, I mean, you came from still photography, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but now you're, much of what you do is video. And you, you seem to me to be one of the photographers that I've observed, uh, news photographers or documentary photographers, who has pretty um, seamlessly, is that the word, morphed into something that is required by the modern news organization, which is still and video. And having worked with you, I know that you work very hard and you hustle a lot, and that's definitely part of the secret. But, I mean, can you talk about, like, what it's like to be a visual journalist now and what the future maybe is going to be like in a few years' time? Well, what the future will be like, that's a harder topic. Okay, six months. <laughs> six, six months. Like, let's, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about you. Are you going to have a job in six months, and what will it be to do? I, I hope so. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the photography industry, in one word, might be fucked. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's fucked. That's not fair. There's always going to be a place for photography. Um, it is still my passion, in some ways, I just look at it in a much different way now. Um, just like the the brief career thing is that, you know, I was a still photographer for, I don't know, six years or eight years professionally before I really switched into video. And that switch to video was not intentional. It was through the DSLR. Through It, what, it definitely was through the DSLR. Yeah. It enabled me. Uh, uh, speak in English, gentlemen. The, the digital single lens reflex camera, right? So, you right. know, you're... you're, you're yeah, right, the same camera I used to take pictures with, still pictures with for newspapers. Yeah, suddenly could camera. produce, suddenly could shoot video. Right, it suddenly yeah. could shoot video and the, the, there's a specific camera and people are even... Kind like of, say the Mark V. Uh, it's Mark II, really. Mark II, like the, the... So the Canon Mark... 5, 5D, 5D Mark II. Mark II, right, right. Yeah, a lot of people call people... There's this like kind of internet term, uh, Generation 5D, which people right. refer to people like me as of filmmakers who started with the 5D. Um, and we're completely different than the older form of TV news, uh, TV cameraman or something like that. Uh, what we do is much, much different. Um, how we operate is different, and the product we make is different. Let's, let's talk. I mean, I, not everybody is familiar with this. Not everyone is even aware of uh, of, of what you get when you do video with, uh, with, a, with a DSLR, like a 5D Mark II, which is just, 
I mean, it's gorgeous. The depth of field, I mean, the, the, that kind of filmic feel to to the video. That right. you, um, you can talk about this better than I can, of course. It, yeah, I mean, it's it it not only made video possible technology in a small fa- form factor, but it made it much better looking. Yes. <laughs> and yes. I mean, and that was the thing. It resembled film. It resembled cinema. Um, and these are things that were really easy for me as a photographer to latch on to. So basically, this camera came along, and suddenly you could take what looks like a regular SLR camera, uh, digital SLR camera, and, take video. and you could take video, but the video actually looks better than the equipment that the TV people are using. Yeah. Um, however, they don't function quite as well, and definitely not as easy. Um, and they're not as easy to use to make it function like a video camera. And this is why over the past uh, four years now, since I really started going like, you know, um, balls deep, I don't know how to say it, but into video that... Uh, balls I, deep, I think that's it, how you is, say it. Is that it. an expression? Yeah. I think yeah, it is. I like it. I like it. So I started with this little camera. And I was like, oh, this is great. This can take video. I can make videos. And now all of a sudden I'm back to not necessarily bigger cameras, but they're much bigger than what I used to use. Um, and because those little cameras, they don't do things like uh, record audio well. They don't do things like um, there's some really important parts to make things look right that they just don't have built in. However, and no autofocus or anything. yeah, there's no autofocus, and that doesn't bother me so much. Autofocus, mm. um, you know, autofocus. There's points when it can very very useful, but for the most part, I don't actually use it much. Right. Um, but the th- the thing is, technology has changed in the photography world so much in the past five years that it's changed the industry, right. both on the consumer end for the business of selling cameras um, and for professionals. Um, and so I think maybe especially four or five years ago, I used to be in Beijing. There was like uh, this huge group of foreign uh, freelance photographers and everyone was kind of friends. And it was much more friendly than some of the other environments I'd been in in the West or in Europe where we didn't really feel like we were competing with each other. People were helping each other out. It was friendly, but there were still so many photographers, and there was nobody. There was very little freelance video people. Right. And so all of a sudden, I started doing it, and it was just like work kept coming in and kept coming in. And, you know, you work every day for a couple of years doing something, and you every day you make a mistake. Every day you learn from it, hopefully. And, um, and you keep going. You keep trying to get better at it and better at it. And it gave me an opportunity to create content that wasn't necessarily completely attached to something else. That was a big deal for me. With photos, it was very hard to, like, sell a photo. <laughs> I mean, if a, if a young photographer wants to, like, make money selling photos, it, it's a very uphill battle. It's, it's not a good battle to take, in my opinion. Because you need those photos to go with other content. It's going to be, unless you're in the It's going to be with text or, with, uh, be with, or marketing shit. Yeah, or yeah. marketing stuff. You know, people aren't just like buying photos because they look nice. Maybe in the art world, but that's even a worse. That's even a, right. it's a whole different, different mafia yeah, to it's, deal it's, with. It's, yeah. it's, it's worse. Um, and so, but with video, all of a sudden there was so much demand that. And, and I, there still is. I don't know a lot of people who can soak it up, right? I mean, right, right. I mean, it, it hasn't actually. You hear that? Uh, Let's put the call out. I mean, <laughs> I think that's, that's a ter- tremendous. I think it's a tremendous op- a new opportunity. So, so would you? I mean, would you statue. recommend like a, a person, a young? Well, you're quite young, but uh, somebody younger than you, looking somebody who has a good sense of image and moving image. Um, I mean, is this a career that that has a future? And, Absolutely. And what 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 should they do to get into it? Absolutely. I mean, there's so much work for video people now in so many different avenues, whether it's editorial or news or documentary. I mean, content. Brands need content. Yeah, absolutely. Every brand needs content. I get, especially, I'm not, I I was freelance for years, even though I had a contract with the Times, but now that I'm full-time and I can't take other work, I mean, I turn down jobs every single, almost every day. It's not commercial work. You're finding there's not a lot of people you can just toss them to. No, I try. And I, I, I... 
it just depends what they need. You know, they can go to a production company and get this huge price tag. Right. And, you know, not necessarily be guaranteed good work. But what I was doing was circumnavigating the system, especially for a long time, where people could come to me and I can put together a team to either shoot a documentary or a news piece or a commercial piece in a day. You know, that's the beauty of China. Right. Like, you need a group of gaffers and a set and two models and whatever you need. You can have it right away. Like, th- th- things happen. Or, you know, a yeah. family. <laughs> I love China. <laughs> There's some things about China that I love. <laughs> That's one of them. <laughs> but the, the fact is, especially in the news world, um, there's a lot more advertising value to video that they can apply very quickly. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. all of my videos in the New York Times have pre-roll, pre-roll advertisement. Right. right. 15, you know, 45 seconds. 15 or, seconds, right, yeah. Right, right. Um, maybe on a longer piece, 30 seconds. But uh, for the most part, 15 seconds. And so every time they put a video of mine... And now that we ha- there's corporate partners going on that are also using those type of, like Google, for example, right. cross-publishes our videos. Uh-huh. Um, and so Google has a lot of platforms besides YouTube, um, although YouTube is a, is their is, a, is a great platform. But, um, and so all of our videos are going out to all these different places, and all of them have advertisement. Now, if we have an article with just a photo, sure, there's value. Um, but it's not necessarily direct uh, direct, not necessarily so much monetary value. Well, not there is in the product that that's mm. the, the the product the whole, that we make, yeah. Right. But it's not direct revenue, right? I mean, it's a very different model than television news, though. Yeah. I mean, which is which is great. And in fact, I I would much prefer for some reason I I, I uh, if I were to to uh, to look for good video reporting, I would sooner go to uh, the New York Times. Then I would go to CNN. I mean, it's it's an odd world we live in. That the TV you know, news is broken. They're all, they all suck. Right. I mean, yeah. I, the best is maybe Except maybe BBC Lustau. and Al Jazeera. Yeah. Well, it's inconsistent though. That's and Christy Lustau. BBC, Al Jazeera, and Christy Lustau. But there's nobody else really. But it's inconsistent, right? Yeah. Because you, you you do get good TV, good news, news, but most of it's very formulaic. And before they even start talking, you kind of know what it's going to be. It's very repetitive at this yeah. point. Yeah, that's right. Um, whereas in the online world. We are living in a world without boundaries, without form. It's New York Times, Vice Media. You're on the same platform. So, no, but like, this you can do what you want for the Times. So I'm thinking this is this well. Is, it's it's been. I mean, there's a reason when I started in the department in 2010 or 11, whenever it was. Um, we had about 20 people. Now we have about 50. Wow. Um, so this is a newspaper that has doubled its a section of the newspaper. That's extremely rare. The fact that I have a job and I live in China. Is extremely rare, and it, but it is, it is a sign, um, a sign of growth, a sign of economic potential, um, and so these are all good things. So if I was a young person, I mean, first of all, the art form is absolutely there's so much room for creativity and storytelling form. Um, I take inspiration from movies, from documentaries, from all over the place. I mean, it's so cool that I have this freedom, hmm. and it's not nothing. There's nothing wrong with a still picture. I still love a still picture. And I look at my frames as still pictures, that each of these right. frames is, is a composition within itself with movement in it. Um, and I still think that way, like as a still photographer, but there is a lot of room for somebody to be creative and not be boxed in by the walls of TV, for example. It's interesting. There's somebody else, uh, another young person who spent a lot of time here in China as a still photographer who's moved in another direction, not toward editorial and news, but toward documentary filmmaking, uh, and and other creative stuff. That's Matthew Niederhauser, who's been who's been on our show before. Uh, I I see kind of some parallels between the, what the two of you have done. It's it's interesting. I mean, the thing is, it's it's been very rewarding. Um, at the same time, <laughs> I I mean, maybe just like anyone else who likes their job, 
you are you're always working when yeah. you're on vacation yeah. you're working you don't take yeah. time off there's no the weekends have no meaning no, yeah that's that's just called fulfillment i mean that's joy <laughs> fulfillment that's, that's good. but video i mean i i think i think there is i mean having made uh a fair bit of uh film and video it's very labor intensive mm. it's mm. very very mm-hmm. labor intensive i mean you just need time you can't do it quickly right it, and speaking of time we are getting, getting there. to the point where we need to actually move on to recommendations okay uh, and uh, so, Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? Uh, so I'm going to recommend something. I, I hope, in fact, to have the author of this book on the show, Luigi Tomba, who's a colleague of mine, I suppose, at the Australian Center of China and the World, and has just written a book called The Government Next Door, which looks at how uh, real estate, how uh, you know the, the way Chinese cities have developed in the last 10 or 15 years have given the Chinese government these instruments of control and uh, ability to basically monitor what's going on in neighborhoods. Um, and it's I'm about halfway through it so far, and it's, it's it's a sort of interesting look at a side of China that you kind of know about, but perhaps don't really think about of how policing works. You know uh, how it went from a situation where it was neighborhood informants and gossips and old ladies to a slightly different situation where you have these kind of grids in in urban centers. Uh, very interesting. Mm. Jonah yeah. Kessel, what do you have for us? Um, I'm not big into the uh, necessarily life coaching uh, stuff, but I saw this thing that went a bit viral this week uh, by an author called Mark Manson called uh-huh. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Um, <laughs> I, and like I, I started reading it and I couldn't get enough of it. It's just, it's just, Maybe it's uh, basic information, but it made me think twice about what should bother me and what shouldn't and when I should give a fuck and when I should... Right. No. I have a problem of giving a fuck way too much. I mean, I, I get you tend to give too, really, too many fucks. Right. There's this great quote on in the some wire. issues you do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, do the bunk in in the wire. He says, you know, your problem was you gave a fuck when it wasn't your turn to give a fuck. Right. <laughs> the bunk is the font of all great wisdom. Lester and the bunk be, be, between the two of them, all all, all that needs great to be known is known. All right. So mine actually connects with, with your recommendation a little bit because it has to do with sort of um, the sur- surveillance apparatus. of, uh, But, but it, it's, it's a fascinating story. It's by my, one of my favorite writers in The New Yorker, Khalifa Sena. Uh, he did a story, and I, I'm the blanking on the, the, I think it's sort of like um, they know how you feel. It's about a, effective computing. It's about um, a, the, the use of computer vision to determine human emotion, it's use of not just computer vision signals on the face, but there are and there are you know hundreds of, of, of little discrete muscle movements that a computer can pick up on that, that last a fraction of a second sometimes. They give clues to an emotional state that are quite universal across cultures. And sometimes you know a smirk, a sneer, uh, a raising of an eyebrow, a flash of an eye, just a, a little minor muscle twitch, you know, the corners of your mouth moving, and all this stuff can be recorded and. Uh, applied and it's it tells a story which is it's it's fascinating um the, the the protagonist of the story is an egyptian woman a woman who was born and raised in egypt uh and a muslim who is uh now running a company in waltham massachusetts along that the tech corridor there in boston called uh affectiva she started off uh, I mean, the, the the story arc is a little bit contrived because it, it has her starting off you know thinking that this is going to be a way uh, to help autistic children to interpret you know one of the problems that uh, people suffering autism uh, for, on the autism spectrum don't recognize 
human visuals, emotion human, human uh, signals, expressions. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it sort of the software that she built can coach them, tell them what an appropriate response is here. Uh, and along the way, though, of course, she gets kind of hijacked by uh, by Madison Avenue, by first Millward Brown, you know, which is owned by WPP. And they, they all uh, start to figure out, you know, J. Walter Thompson or whatever. They, they, they figure out that this is incredibly powerful in uh, to, to, to gauge audience reactions to to advertising. Uh, and and I didn't know this. This is just crazy. But the Xbox, did you know this? The Xbox watches you as you're playing. The, the, the new Xbox. The new one, too, yeah. Right. And so it knows how many people are in the room. It, it, it can track all sorts of facial expressions. It knows your, your movements and gestures and things like that. And it will actually calibrate the game and, 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 and all sorts of stuff like that just in response to this. It's, it's more than slightly creepy, but the whole story arc is of her kind of, you know, succumbing gradually to the blandishments of, of capitalism and uh, eventually sort of kind of... Fuck the autistic children! Let's sell advertising! Well, is, yeah, it, is that the, is that it's, the summary? It's a little bit... Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, I think that it feels a little shoehorned into that narrative arc. Right. But... Um, yeah, that, but that's the story, and it's it's pretty goddamn compelling. And and, the, and are you working on the same thing at so Baidu no, Lab, Baidu AI Labs in, in California? To, so no, I can, what sorry, I can say sorry. is that this is, is something very easily within our reach. Absolutely, it's something that we could very easily do. I mean, they, they mentioned, for example, one uh, app that that somebody had developed, one of the car manufacturers had developed, where it would. Uh, watch your eyes or watch your face to, 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 to look for signs of drowsiness. And we actually built something like that just in, during a hackathon that we did with Ford Motor Company. Baidu did. Baidu did a hackathon with Ford Motor Company. And one of the winners was somebody who took, uh, you know, you take an Android phone, you, you know, stick the app on it and have it facing you with the camera on you. And it, it looks at, at your eyes. And if you, you show signs of drowsiness, your mouth slacks. If your eyes close for too long, if your head nods, it'll suddenly blast what was the song? Um, Gangnam style, just super loud. I mean, like, turn the volume up completely, and then text your most recently texted friends in your in your phone list to tell them your friend is driving while drowsy. Call him now and tell him to 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 pull over. Kind wow, of, kind of hmm. cool. So, I mean, there are benevolent uses of it. Right. I'm sure there are a few benevolent uses to get the users but we're hooked. Not, we're not interested in those. No. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah Kessel. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, such a why. I don't know how we're going to title this one. I mean, it's we, we talked about Jade and heroin and and and, and yeah and, and visual yeah. journalism. I mean, when we talked about this show, we we said that, but it's kind of a lame ass word, really. Visual journalism. It's, it's not very sexy. The visual world of John Castle. Like, <laughs> yeah. All right. We, um, so we need another title. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you guys decide that. We will. All right. And, but uh, meanwhile, we, we have uh, a bunch of good shows coming up, and we look forward to seeing you or uh, talking to you or having you listen to us or whatever on the Cynical Podcast next time. Jeremy. Kaiser. Jonah. Kaiser. Good night, folks. Good night, folks.